Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Hey folks, and welcome to The Prestige, a podcast for film lovers by film lovers. Each episode we pick a film, we discuss that film, we review that film, we talk about some of the ideas and themes and analysis that we can bring to bear on that movie. And as always, we end the show with our recommendations, further watching or further reading based on the movie. And as always, we start with what else we've been watching, other things we've taken the time to watch or read or enjoy since we our last recording. So Sam... You are not new of parentage, but new of new parentage. I am. How is your spare time going, and what have you seen? Um, well, I'm remarkably able to watch films, actually, because I do a bit of an evening shift to give my wife some time. Um, so I am keeping up with film watching. And having watched... well. Uh, Last week, how I was unable to watch the last time about how I was unable to watch uh, a critically lauded darling of the 2020 awards season because Adam Sandler, um, well, many other things. Uh, I gave up on Uncut Gems halfway through. I watched another um, film from I think it's it was 2019, but it was it came to prominence in 2020. And it's Boon Joon-ho's Parasite. And in contrast to Uncut Gems, I thought this was absolutely brilliant. And I just loved it. The The writing is brilliant. The direction is brilliant. It builds the tension and several really, really, really surprising things happen. There is a huge gear change about an hour into it. Um, which I did not see coming. And yeah, it's just great. It's, whereas Uncut Gems is just, I, in my opinion, not worth your time. Parasite very definitely is. So if you haven't seen Parasite yet, then go and watch it. It's really good. It's also, um, his Okja was one of my favourite films of a few years ago. So he is a director to watch. Excellent. It's one of the ones that I haven't actually seen. Um, because I just haven't around yet, but it has had some amazing reviews and uh, it's sitting high on my list to at some point get through. Um, I have very much gone the other way currently, um, and I am diving into old classic movies. Those who in the UK will know that we have BBC iPlayer over here, and what they do over there is they put all the movies that they show on the BBC on iPlayer. So there's always a good selection of movies on there, very often classic ones. So this week I have watched the 1945 movie, The Spanish Main, filmed in beautiful, amazing Technicolor. It is a swashbuckling movie of pirates and corrupt um, officials and beautiful dames on the uh, seas. Um, It's very of the era in that it's all very melodramatic but it's beautiful and it's got that kind of swashbuckling everyone fighting with rapiers honor among thieves it's got tortuga it's got pirates it's got amazing it's just a good fun brilliant yarn and i really enjoyed it unsurprisingly i'm really trying to do a bit more of this kind of watching of old films because i didn't grow up with a family who watched films 
most of my films I came to by myself, which is why my knowledge and experience tends to focus heavily on the 90s onwards, because that's what I grew up with watching. Um, I had an older brother who got me into movies as well. So, but that was our focus. You know, we, early 90s onwards was what I watched mostly. And so a lot of movies, especially the early ones, I've just never seen. Um, so I'm trying to correct that. Um, and the Spanish main is what I've watched. It is an iPlayer still. Go see it. It's a good, fun, really sort of enjoyable kind of romp of a movie. This week, everyone, we are starting on our next subgenre of films. We're going to be looking at heist films. It's a bit of a gear change from teen high school films. And the first film this week is just about the earliest we could find. It's the 1955 film, yes, French crime film, Rififi. Rafifi is an adaptation of a novel of the same name and it sets up several of the tropes that we will know from later films, you might, films you might be more familiar with. It tells the story of a man who's come out of jail and he gets roped into doing one more now, I'm falling into cliches here, but it's, he gets pulled in for one more big con. And the central sequence is particularly famous from a cinematographical point of view. And it won several awards. It was fated at Cannes, I believe. And it is generally seen to be the high watermark of French film noir. So, Rob, what are your thoughts? I really worry here that we've played ourselves into a corner a little bit. Um, this is the first episode of our heist series. And 
This is hands down one of the best heist films I've ever seen. I can see why it has the weight on the genre it does. I mean, Sam said there in the introduction that his description is a bit tropey. And it's true, it is. It is one last job. It is, you know, it is the highly technical heist. But this is where they all come from. I adore this movie. I thought it was so well made. I thought it was so brilliantly shot. I loved the scene, the half an hour set in the middle, which is the near silence of the heist, was tense and really kind of like inventive, but also it had that real kind of dramatic irony of the ending. In you see him drop down and grab the ring, and you're like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. And the whole back end of the film from that one moment springs. And I just thought it was so well done. And I think this film is interesting because like most of my heist film experience been the more modern ones. And we'll certainly get to those in time. But this, you know, with, with obviously spoilers here right away, guys, they didn't get away with it. And that was really shocking to me. I somehow felt they would get away with it because that's what you think of in heist films. You're on the side of the robbers. You want them to get away with it. And they don't hear. And I thought that was an amazing choice. I will talk later on about what I think this film is really about. Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing to unpack. But I think from a pure cinematic experience, I just adored it. I thought it was amazing. I thought the ending, the, the whole, like the driving scene at the end in which they're driving back and he's slowly, quietly dialing. Coming from that like precision technicality of the original, the wild, uncontrolled nature of that last scene as he dies, it was just, it was a really emotive, evocative thing for me. And I just, I just really liked it. I just really liked it. Sam. I liked it too, possibly not as much as you, although hard pushed like as much as you, it sounds like. Um, once I got over the fact that I really don't like dubbed films, um, this was this was really good fun. And like I said, it was really interesting. It seemed to sort of fall into two parts. There was things could have potentially gone wrong. You kind of thought they were going to get away with everything. And then there was from the moment that the ring gets taken and you see everything falling apart and everything crumbling. So it was kind of a, a film in, in two halves. And I'm not sure, although that central sequence was amazing, I'm not sure that was kind of what the whole film was about. It seemed to me the most important thing was the, the falling apart after. Um, I did, I, I enjoyed the some of the, the editing felt very modern. Some of the transitions are very slick. Um, but I did think, one thing I wanted, you mentioned I want to bring out straight away is the fact that you weren't, I felt like you're not on the robber's side. And it's how I'm disagreeing with you. I'm not. Mm-hmm. You're not on the robber's side. You're on the side of the strategy because you don't like them. And what this film does is sets up these men as horrible people. So you, you don't warm to them as what you like. What, to my experience from watching heist films, and like I said, this is first of those, my experience is that you kind of want them to get away with it because you want this perfectly executed plan to work. And you, it's like an intellectual puzzle. It's like seeing, posted a few weeks ago, like a really satisfying Sudoku, someone doing it online, and there's something incredibly satisfying about it. You don't care about the people involved. You just care about what they're doing. So I was I was watching that thinking there's something amazing about the intellectual puzzle here. Mm. I, I I think you you've nailed that in a way I hadn't quite grasped. It is. It's a it's the the 
joy of seeing people do things well. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's right, like you don't you don't care about the characters, and like there is a tragic element to the end story, certainly. But yeah, like, there is a joy in seeing it just done well. I mean, it's a whole genre of like social media content is just seeing people do things well. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah, that's really nailed it for me. I did want to talk a little bit about what I think the film's mostly about. I don't know how much you know to the background of the director and this movie. Pretty much nothing. So, Jules Dessin was the director of this, and Jules Dessin is notable for being a communist who was blacklisted by Hollywood right. during the McCarthy era. During the, the sort of blacklisting period of Hollywood, he was blacklisted. And so he was thrown out of Hollywood and couldn't make movies. He wasn't allowed to make movies. And he moved to France. He's American, he moved to France. Um, and this was a big thing in Hollywood at the time, and that he was basically lost and thrown out and couldn't make movies. And I think this film is about that. I think this film is about his experiences being thrown out of what he did and trying to come back to it after the fact. So you see, I, I think you see him in Tony in that he is the person who served these years in exile. He had, he'd been exiled and he'd come back and he's trying to make something new. I think that's why you have him go from say no to the smash and grab but yes to the more elaborate more complex more satisfying robbery and i think that's why you have these the film is about him doing this well and coming out of retirement in one last job um i don't know if we're going to cover it in this series but inception is often talked about as a heist movie but also a movie about filmmaking that people in it represent directors producers like um but i think that's true of most heist movies it's about people who are technically brilliant and specialised coming together to make a thing. Yeah. So you, you get a crew together in the way you get to get a film crew together or a high school together. And I think that's a bit here. I think he's seeing that there. And I also think that's why at the end you have the, when a very, almost a really heartbreaking moment um, in which Tony shoots Caesar, mm. who is played by George Sam. Um, he, that's the director playing that character. And there's this real thing about that you told, that you betrayed the brotherhood or that kind of thing. And the blacklist in Hollywood was other people kind of pointing fingers and saying, no, he's a communist, no, he's a communist. And I think there's an element there of, of kind of cathartic release of those demons, of these people who ruined his life because they broke the code and told, and, you know, told everybody what's going on. And I think there's a lot of that in this movie. And for me, now I come to this with the knowledge of that, which you didn't, I must grant you, I couldn't stop seeing in this movie references to the blacklisting and his time in exile and his somewhat disappointment in the people who he thought were friends but threw him out. That's really interesting. And like it it does put a completely different spin on that moment in which Tony shoots Cesar. And you're right, I mean I, I was just looking at it thinking, well, there's I mean this is another sign of Tony being a particularly ruthless character. You betrayed us, so I'm going to get rid of you. But actually, if you know that about Jules Dessin, you know this is effectively Dessin killing himself or getting rid of what he saw, getting rid of something that he saw the world having made him. It's like the the world, this blacklisting had made him into a particular character and he hated it and he hated what mm. it had done to him to such an extent that he wanted to kill it off. Also, the line was, you know, I liked you, but you know the rules. Mm. And it's like, 
that I think it's that I think where his anger as a disan comes from for his people who the who sort of brought about the blacklist was it just like I liked you but you broke these rules yeah you, you, the, the, the unspoken brotherhood of people of which you didn't turn on each other you don't grasp at your friends was broken um and that's his his pushback on that but yeah I, I thought it was and I say it's very interesting to me that you love the movie with no, knowing none of this Yes, um, but for me, that was a whole other layer to this movie. Was seeing it as because it, it is it is first film after being throughout Hollywood, um, and the book is based on it's very different uh, to the book from what I'm told. I haven't read the book myself, and I just think you can't you can't I can't look at the movie without thinking about like what he's gone through of his life being torn up under him and being thrown to France and like he stayed in France and he never went back to Hollywood, um, even when the blacklist was kind of lifted, and this film obviously was distributed by Hollywood. So it's part of the sort of lifting of, of that ban. But I think it's really interesting to see it in that light. That's really interesting because I've written a note that says a heist film that's not about the heist, but I don't know what I meant. And now I, <laughs> now I know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you knew, you knew all along. Yeah. <laughs> Outside of that metatextual level, I think this film is interesting in that Particularly as, as a bit of text itself, the third act is a very interesting bit of filmmaking. Because as I said, we're so used to films ending almost at the end second act. You know, you, you, you have a crew which gets together and they perform a heist. And there's this like big heroic moment in which they all hurrah at surviving the heist. And then it ends. And then this film keeps going. And I really liked that. I really liked that um, you have that kind of third act breakdown. It's kind of what happens naturally in other films. You see this in in like sequels to films where you find out in the first 30 seconds of that film that everything's fallen apart at the end of the first film or so-and-so spent all the money and they have to do another job. I'm, I'm thinking in particular of Beginning of Ocean 12 where they find out that they've got to pay back all this money that they don't have. And it's the same idea that in, in lots of other films you have that falling apart. But you, like you say, you don't really see that. But in this film, you you actually do see that falling apart and you see them losing the money or far worse than that. But you kind of see that. It really reminded me of, if you remember way, I'm going to say, two and a half years ago, we had this mini-season on the Kirikos Hour. Um, and the first film we covered on that was a film called Drunken Angel. Yes. Uh, which is about... A gangster, basically, um, and a gangster, and it has that same kind of feeling, in it where it ends really like dark and tragically, yeah. And it sees the it, it depends time to explore the fallout of these actions, and I think, as you say, heist films become more shiny, I suppose, yeah. and more more interested in star power. And that's not a bad thing, you know. We both extolled the virtues of Ocean's Eleven. Um, and now you see me and these kind of things that are flashy and showy and all kind of fancy and these are fun films but I just I did like the way this film takes the technical brilliance and just pulls it apart what pulls one thread which is this ring he gives to the dancer mm. and watches the whole thing unravel and you see the people unravel and the, the story unravel and as I say the filmic language these tight shots these locked off shots these smooth shots become these frenetic weird angles and like almost really anxious filmmaking yes the drive the drive back and like there's so many times in that drive back like the kid had this fake this little toy gun 
Yeah. And at one point he points back at the guy's head and I'm like, in my head I'm like, it's a real gun. He's just going to kill him. And then what well, he didn't. And then I thought they're going to crash into somebody and the kid's going to die. And it's just like, it was so, for me, so like high anxiety filmmaking. I mean, it kind of kind of ends with this weird anticlimax, but in many ways, I think only way it could end. But no, yeah, I, I, I like that as a, as a, as a sort of a, a denouement of the, of the movie of this kind of like, and here's what happened next. Um, I think I'll always enjoy movies that break out from that traditional hero's journey, shall we say? Yes. It was so dark. Mm. I was just thinking that there has to be some redemption. I know Tony is terrible. You've seen him beating a woman in the first 20 minutes of the film. But but come on, there is there has to be some redemption for an XCOM. And then there really isn't. It was so weird that, that the whole scene at the start where he meets his ex, and I'm kind of like, oh, I see this is going. You know, he's come out of prison. She's now a gangster. He's going to win her back. And it's all be like, I've changed. Here I am, you know. And then he just beats her with a belt. <laughs> yes. And I'm just like, what? This is not the hero I thought I was getting. And like, yes, it's French cinema. It doesn't kind of trade in that same kind of Hollywood story structure. And there's a whole, you know, long history of French films being much more interested in the darkness of these things. Mm. But it was a bit like, oh, okay. So this is the, ma- oh, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. and you, you say you don't, but it's that weird, as you say, it's that, you see the complexity and you write sort of marvel in the structure of in the structure of the heist mm. and you align that and i think even with tony at the end there is this element of you respect the code yeah that even if you don't like him you have a the same way you have respect for the heist and the technicalities of the heist you have a respect for his dogged determination of the code yeah he could have run he could have got the money and run he could have not done what he did. He could have not broken himself trying to get his kid home. But he does, because he has this code. He shot Cesaire based on that code. And I think there's that same kind of enjoyment of seeing somebody with a unquestionable, unquenchable moral code go about their business. Mm. You know, it's the same reason we like, you know, people like Doctor Who and other heroes like that. These people who have a strict moral code they stick to, you know. Luther, all these kind of people who you see as these arbiters of truth and justice. And on the other side, you know, films that we may come to in time, other criminals where you see there's an element of code to what they do. You know, if, I don't know if you've seen the John Wick films. I love the John Wick. The John Wick, a lot of those are based on the idea of people with codes and what happens when a, a, transgest, <laughs> a transgression of that code exists and happens. Yeah. And it's the same joy of seeing this thing play out. I think you have at the end here. If you see, you don't like the man. Tony is a unrepentant asshole, but he has a code and he sees it through. Mm. I did just, we've sort of brushed over it. The, the most amazing part of this film cinematic view is that central sequence which is virtually silent mm. and i just want to talk about that because i mean they they tried to warn him off i don't know much about as we found out there much about him as a director but i do know about the process of um, speaking to him about this sequence and they tried to warn him off like the the composer came, came to him and said look come on let, let me stick some music in and then the director sat him down and made him watch the sequence and then afterwards said, yeah, let's go with that. Because it is just amazing without sound. But I think there's there's something there that you described um, things like Now You See Me and Ocean's Eleven as 
it was certainly the the remix as particularly slick and shiny and there is something like something in in what dishonors that he can afford not to be shiny and slick and that's why there's no there's no soundtrack to this scene that this is just a scene well you said about people being good at something and it doesn't you don't need to dress it up with anything else because this is just a sequence about it and that weird unspoken camaraderie that they have um they don't need to speak and they understand that it's that you know you know the other person's gonna do what they're gonna do you know yeah. they're gonna cover the and you can rely on everyone else in that room to do the thing they want to do yeah and i i uh i think it is a really powerful bit of filmmaking that middle bit yeah. um do you have another film or more films to recommend i do i have a couple um the first of these sort of similar Similar tone, but then definitely not as dark. Um, also, I suppose it kind of shows the difference between French filmmaking and British filmmaking in the mid 50s is the Allegheny film The Lady Killers from the same year. And it's another, it's the, it's the same sort of thing, but it's, and, and it's particularly dark in places, but generally it's much more upbeat than graffiti. My second film, which is another piece of noir noir filmmaking um, from a similar era, also British, is the Brighton Rock original in forty seven with Richard Attenborough, mm. which I think is, I mean, it's it differs from the book in certain ways, but it's remarkably faithfully original, and it's. It's, it's just an astonishing, sparse, engaged bit of filmmaking. It's not that long. It's an hour and 40 minutes long. It's just, it's just it's well worth watching if you haven't seen it. So those are my two for this week. The Lady Killers and Brighton Rock. Excellent. I did look at Lady Killers as one I might recommend, but I've gone in different direction here. So we haven't talked about it um, in all in this episode. Um, the actual title of the movie is called Rafifi, um, which is a French word for kind of blustery manliness. Um, and you find this out during a slightly odd jazz song and dance scene halfway through um, in a club um, of a the local singer who is the undoing at the end. But it tells the story of why Rafifi, what, what Rafifi is. Um, the singer in that was played, and I'm butcher's name, by Magali Noel, um, who is a very prolific actress. But she also pops up in one of the sequences in the film La Dolce Vita, which is a Federico Fellini film from 1960. It is a beautiful film um, about Rome. It is like held up as a giant of that kind of... Um, style and it's worth it it is such a beautiful movie and she's in it and playing another lounge singer because i think she's got pigeonholed in that but if you haven't seen the doctor vita it is one of the classic films that i know and love so i urge you to see it secondly the silent scene now we talked a lot about that and that is a trick that not many films can pull off this whole sequence which you lose all sound or you lose all dialogue and you just have silence people doing things it's been done a few other times, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Um, but the one I wanted to recommend is a film from 1974, uh, which is the film The Conversation, which is a Gene Hackman 
political thriller, I suppose, about a surveillance expert who starts to believe he is being bugged as well. He's being surveilled. And there's, I think it's about five, six minutes of it, in which he believes he is being bugged and he tears apart his flat to find these bugs. And it is silent. In There's no dialogue. He's obviously breaking things, turning things apart. But it's just in the middle of a movie about being listened to, about words and everything about his words. This whole silent sequence is just... So, kick in the gut when watching the movie. Um, so I would once again brilliantly recommend The Conversation. I think if you haven't seen it, it's in that 70s espionage, conspiracy thriller sort of genre. And if you like that sort of stuff, I'd recommend it heartily. Brilliant. Rob, tell us about next time. Next week. So we've in many ways mentioned this film a lot this week, but also not mentioned it at all. Uh, we are jumping ahead five years and we're jumping across the Atlantic, back to America. And we're going to be watching the original Ocean's Eleven. So 1960, starring the Rat Pack and a bunch of other people who you'll know. It is the film that inspired the remake that everybody knows. This is the original. I've never seen it, though I've seen the original many, many times. And I'm looking forward to going back and checking it out. Yes, I've, I've never seen it either, although I have mixed feelings about it, but generally admire the... So it'd be interesting for me as well. So guys, I want to mention one thing before we wrap up. Uh, Kaiju FM is launching a newsletter. So we are going to do a monthly letter in which we talk about the shows we're doing, talk about things we find on the internet that we like, and all kinds of things like that. It's going to talk about our shows, but not just about our shows. If you like our show and you want to find out more of what we do on the network or other cool things that we find on the internet, you can sign up at kaiju.fm. There's a box on the right-hand side to sign up your letter. Go click on that, fill in your email address and you'll be getting some goodness hopefully within the week till then guys you can find both of us online at Pressy podcast you can find just me at life underscore academic and you can find me at code fm and we'll see you here in two weeks